בשם השם נעשה ונצליח, שיעור תורה, good to be in Aventura, the Breslov Center, ברוך השם, back here again, try to get some מוסר, uh, some uh, different things that are going to help our lives drastically, we see from the שיעורים uh, ברוך השם online, are getting very good results, a lot of people are uh, commenting and uh, saying this is the stuff that they've always wanted to, to learn, always wanted to uh, apply it's obviously it's not easy every week it's uh, you know a uh, a huge uh, undertaking you know if you just apply one week's entire shoot to your life you're already going to improve your life in a big way uh, but the key is to make sure that we apply a little bit a little bit each time you know, to make sure that uh, never to look at it as it's too big for us oh this is too much for me I might as well not even listen to the rest of this year Ah, this is too much. Okay, I might as well not do it. Now, okay, whatever you could take, take on. If anger is your problem, okay, start working on it. If you can't overcome your anger over in two seconds, then obviously, uh, you know, take um, a little bit. Try to contain yourself somewhat. If it's uh, not anger, if it's patience, or if it's this, or if it's that, whatever it is, different issues that every one of us uh, has, we have to make sure that we work on them. And uh, ultimately, with Hashem, you, you work on the Midot, but you have to make sure that you're working on something. Because if you're not working on something, you're just wasting time. You're just Tochen Maim. Tochen Maim is like grinding water. You know, you're uh, living your life just grinding water, nothing's going to change, then this, we're just wasting each other's time. You know, we're all going to get up to Olam uh, Emet, and they're going to ask you, okay, did you uh, learn Torah? So, yeah, yeah, I went to Shur once a week, I... Uh, I did, uh, went to Mincha, I went to Alvit, went to Shachrit once in a while. Okay, great. So, uh, why did you still uh, walk around looking like a goy? Why did you uh, still uh, act like you never ate food before in your life? Every time you saw a steak, you like jumped on it, thinking like you're a uh, wild uh, lion in the middle of Africa chasing a deer. Why don't you work on your midot? Why don't you work on your character traits to, to become a Ben Adam, to come, become a human being? Oh, I, you know, I listened. Listening is half the battle. Doing is the key. So now we have continuation of Perkei uh, Avot series. If you don't mind, close the door, please. If we continue with the Perkei Avot series... Uh, we have Mishnah Yudzayin, Mishnah 17. Shimon Bno, now we listen to who's Shimon Bno. We know that every time we have a, uh, a Mishnah, it's usually connected, especially with Perek Aleph, especially with the first part. It's connected to the free, previous one. So Shimon Bno, Shimon the son of who? Of Aban Gamliel. Aban Gamliel is the one that said the previous Mishnah. Shimon Bno Omer, Shimon, his son, the son of Rabban Gamliel, says, All my days I've been raised among the sages, and I found nothing better for the body than silence, being quiet. It's not... The theory that's the primary of importance, but action, exactly what we just said. And one who talks excessively brings sin. 
Now already over the last couple of months we've been learning each one of these Mishnayot. We see that the plain, simple meaning of it already is atomic bomb if you apply all of it. But then once you start dissecting each and every part of each Mishnah, you see it's not only atomic bomb, it's a death star. Mamash, each one of each sentence, each Mishnah, you break it down into pieces of what it actually means. We see that it's something that's completely out of this world that could change your whole life. Just applying part of the Mishnah, not even the whole Mishnah, just part of the Mishnah already changes your life. Is this okay. also going to change it? Huh? It's the only listening. You can't apply everything. Is that also going to help? Listening is it's half the battle. You have to apply. You have to apply as much as you can. Okay, so first and foremost. We have to ask again, as we do every week, who are we talking to? Who is this Shimon? Who is this Shimon Bno? Who is this Shimon, the son of Rabban Gamliel? And he's telling you here, listen, my whole, all my days, all my life have been raised among the sages. Okay, so what was this? What's the big deal? He's trying to tell you here, he's like, listen, if you're going to be surrounded by a bunch of losers, most likely you're going to be a loser. If you're surrounded by winners, most likely you could be a winner. You can have more opportunities to be a winner. You're not guaranteed to be a winner. More, most likely. If you're surrounded by smart people, most likely mo- what you're going to hear is things that are of wisdom, of intellect. And you're more likely to actually earn the wisdom yourself. So he says, my whole life I've been part of the royal family, the Gamliel family. And in Taigma, it says, Every time Rabban Gamliel is in an argument, you know, they have all the debates. Right, they have the debates. This size does this, this size does this. Every time Rabban Gamliel is in the argument, already automatically, you know, Allah is Rabban Gamliel. I heard when they would argue, it would be like a war. Sometimes, sometimes. But the point is, is that Shimon says, my whole life I've been around these people, these giants, these Tanaim, these people that are able to revive the dead. These people that are speaking to Hashem. These people that was Malachi Hashem. I was around them my whole life. So you know, I'm not a fool, first of all. And second of all, you know that in the nature versus nurture battle, I'm on the winning side. Because you have, sometimes you have nature win, sometimes you have nurture win scientifically. Meaning... You can have somebody be surrounded by a bunch of winners, a bunch of tzaddikim, a bunch of people that are extremely smart. But if he has a problem mentally, he uh, has some type of disease, or uh, he has some type of uh, some type of problem, some type of moon. Yeah, some type of moon. It doesn't matter how smart everybody else is next to him. He's never going to be like them because he doesn't have the physical ability. So that's nature. Shimon is telling you, nature, Baruch Hashem, I'm 100% healthy. He's giving you Mishnah. Nurture, he says, who are you next to? Who's your surroundings? If you grow up in the middle of the projects, where every other day there's, uh, there's a, uh, a murder, every other day there's a uh, new drug lord, every other day there's a serious problem, it's going to be very, very hard for you. You need serious, serious Yatadishmaya to get out of there a winner. It happens, Baruch Hashem. But it's much more difficult than if you were born and grew up 
in a religious neighborhood, you have people that are B'nai Torah, not necessarily rich, it doesn't have to be rich. Some of the greatest sages that ever lived, most of them, were dirt poor. But they were surrounded by Am Yisrael, they were surrounded by Tzadikim. So it's not about money, it's not about having fancy buildings and fancy this and fancy that. No, it's about having B'nai Torah. Meaning, if your surroundings is a bunch of people that are criminals, or wicked people, or Lashayim against Hashem, most likely you're going to be like them. But if you're surrounded by tzaddikim, that wake up early to go to nets, that uh, go to sleep late because they're studying Torah, that know that Shlom Bayit is much more important than a lot of the things that they think, uh, adding a lot of these extra mitzvot that are not really, uh, you know, chova, these chumot that people add. So they know what's important. If you're surrounded by people like that, Baruch Hashem, you're most likely to be a bigger winner. Shimon is telling you, I've been a beneficiary of both. Baruch Hashem, I'm 100% healthy, and on top of it, I'm surrounded by the biggest winners in history. And I'm telling you that my whole life I listened to them, I sat next to them, and there's one lesson I want to tell you I learned from them. Now you can tell, okay, say, listen, what kind of lessons could you tell us? Listen, if you learn with atmada, with dedication, you're going to be a big Tamit Chacham. If you work really hard, you're going to be, I don't know, really rich or really smart. Yeah, what kind of advice? Somebody like this, surrounded by the greatest tzaddikim in history, what kind of advice is he going to give us? He tells us, I can tell you one thing. One thing. Lo matzati leguftov All my days, I've been raised among these sages, and I found nothing that's better for the body than being silent. Now, first here, but what do you mean being silent? You're talking right now. Mm. You're saying being silent? What kind of silence is this? So first and foremost, we have to understand that he's telling us something here that's very, very deep. There's silence and there's silence. There's good silence and there's bad silence. So for example, I read in his uh, blog called The Wandering Jew. Uh, it was a nice article. And he was talking about the, uh, the, I think it's called the, uh, what is it, the sound of silence? Yeah, the sound of silence. And uh, he uses all different types of proof. Something very, very interesting. He says, you know, Avraham Avinu, Avraham Avinu uses a uh, source is, um, in Midrash Tanchuma, Midrash Tanchuma 9, or 39. And he says, Avraham Avinu, we learned like a few weeks ago, when Hashem told him, listen, I'm going to destroy Sdom Bamura. I'm going to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah, I'm going to destroy everything. Avraham Avinu all of a sudden goes into a debate with Hashem. He says, Hashem, no, what if they have 50 tzaddikim, you're going to destroy the tzaddikim and the reshaim? Hashem says, no, I won't destroy them if there's 50 tzaddikim. Hashem says, says, what if there's 45? It's only 45? Okay, so it's 5 less than 50. What, you're going to destroy the tzaddikim and the reshaim just because it's 5 less than 50? Hashem says, no, no problem. I won't destroy them. So Avraham says, okay, what if there's 40? I won't destroy them. What if there's 30? I won't. And he goes back and forth, back and forth until they go down to the number 10. Shem says, even if there's 10 tzaddikim, I won't destroy it. But you see here, 
The Torah has an extensive dialogue, shows an extensive dialogue between Avram Avinu and Hashem. Where Avram Avinu, Kivyachol, is debating Hashem. He's trying to convince him to not destroy Sodom and Gomorrah. And he's giving him all these excuses, all these things. Ba, 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 ba. Avram Avinu. Okay. Chazal says that Hashem continued letting him talk because he had so much respect for him and so much love for Avram Avinu that he did not allow himself to destroy Sodom and Gomorrah until Avram Avinu felt like he said everything he wanted to say. Until he got everything off of his heart. Until he finished his Buddhadut. Until he got everything off of his heart. He said, okay, now you're finished. You got everything off your heart. Okay, okay, I'm going to check. If there's 10 Tzadikim, I promise you I won't destroy it. Said, no. Obviously, there wasn't 10 Tzadikim. There wasn't even one. Noach should have prayed also, he said. For the... Can, can, Noach. But the point is that he let, him, he let him talk and get everything off his heart. Fine. But then we see something much more interesting. Then we see that after the whole issue of what happened with Sodom and Gomorrah, Hashem destroys it, there's no tzaddikim, there's no nevonim, there's no nothing. Shortly after, Hashem comes to Avraham Avinu and he tells him, My son, remember that son that I told you? The one that you love, your only son, Yitzchak, the one that I said that all of their descendants, they're going to be one day like the stars of the sky or the sand in the, uh, on the beach. Remember all that? Remember that sun that I talked about? Yes. Well, I want you to bring him as an offering. Akedah. Bring him as a korban. In essence, what Avram understood is I have to kill my son. I have to kill my son. For why? Because Hashem said so. What is he going to do? Avram Avinu not only follows what Hashem says, but he actually wakes up extra early in the morning to go bring Yitzhak Avinu to the Akedah at 37 years old. He brings him to slaughter his son, ties him up. Yitzhak is a tzaddik. He says, Abba, tighten me extra tight. Just in case my Yitzhak comes, and I push you away because I'm much stronger than you. So tie me extra sh- tight so you can do it. Now here's the interesting thing. You look, look at that details of the entire parasha, the entire parasha Akilat Yitzchak, which we read every morning in Shachrit. And you see that not even once, not even once, did Avraham Avinu debate with Hashem. Not once did he say to Hashem, Hashem, Maybe you want to kill Ishmael? Zarashat anyway? He's going to turn into a bunch of Arabs that turn into ISIS that want to kill all of us anyway? Hashem, maybe you want to kill one of these Canaanim or something, one of these Canaanites that are idol worshippers? Hashem, maybe you want to something? Kill somebody else? Wait, kill my son, the one you promised me is going to be my descendants, the tzaddik. The... One time argue with him. Say, Hashem, it doesn't really make sense what you're saying to me. It really doesn't make any sense. Just yesterday you told me that all of my descendants are going to come from Yitzchak. Now you're telling me to bring him as a, as a korban. How are the descendants going to come from him if he dies? How could this be? 
It's a good question. It's a good question, Nahon. Not one debate. For the Rashaim, he debated, but for his son, the Tzaddik, that doesn't make any sense at all. He didn't debate once. It's a big question. So here, we know and we learn that Abraham Avinu, obviously, that preceded Shimon, that preceded even Moshe Rabbeinu, he had the entire Torah Ba'al-Peh in his hands. The Gemara says, just like the Gemara Masechet Abu Dazara has a handful of parts, chapters, the Gemara of Avraham Avinu of Masechet Abu Dazara had 4,000 parts. Meaning his Torah was much, much more extensive than ours. Yeah, or written down, or in a, uh, in a, you know it by heart. I think it was, you know it by heart. They had much better memory. But nonetheless, yeah, of course, different people. We can't even imagine what they had. But the point being is that he had Torah that we can't even imagine. There's also a book called Sefer Abriya, the book of creation. It's still around. We still have parts of it. That was Avraham Avinu. There's different secrets in there, different Kabbalistic stuff. The uh, one of the uh, holy books says, since Avraham Avinu, the forefather of Judaism, he wasn't a Jew, he was a Noahide, so he wasn't allowed to keep Shabbat. But the Gemara says that the Avot kept the entire Torah, but. The Rambam says, and so does Shulchan Aruch, and so does the uh, different places in the Torah, a goy that keeps Shabbat, chayav mita. A goy that keeps Shabbat has to get death penalty, heavenly death penalty. He's not allowed to keep Shabbat. And the reason why is because they're not, if they're, if they're staying a non-Jew, by them keeping Shabbat, they're in essence only taking part of Judaism and not the entire thing, which in essence means that they're creating a new religion. You're not allowed to create a new religion. And that's one of the reasons. Another reason is because Hashem says that the Shabbat, if you remember in the Kiddush, He says, Briti It's a covenant between me and you. You, who's you? Who's Am Yisrael? This is, also, this is also an argument against a couple of people today. There's a couple of rabbis today that decide to become the new Rashi. And uh, start contradicting what the sages have told us for the last 3,300 years. And I say, no, no, no. That's not what they meant. That's not what they meant. The Noahides are allowed to keep Shabbat. Ger is allowed to keep Shabbat. This is completely against the Torah. It's completely false. They say, no, but it means Ger means this and Ger means that. Babkis. The whole argument is destroyed by a simple one verse in the Torah. One single verse. Hashem specifically says the Shabbat is a brit b'ni o It's a covenant between me and you. You meaning the Jews. Not you meaning the Noahides. Not you meaning the Egyptians. Not you meaning some guy that wants to keep it and still uh, worship idols. And not a guy that even if he doesn't worship idols but he doesn't want to take on the entire 613 commandments can't keep Shabbat. So now this is a contradiction. How did Avraham Avinu, Yitzchak Avinu, Yaakov Avinu keep all the mitzvot but at the same time not keep Shabbat? So the holy books say 
that Avraham Avinu used the secrets that are in Sefer Abriah, the book of creation, that was actually giving him enough uh, the, the wisdom to create things. To actually create. So what he would do? So on Shabbat, he would create a cow. From nothing. Like Hashem created the world, Hashem gave him the ability to create stuff. And you're not allowed to, you're not allowed to create anything on Shabbat. That's the whole thing. 39 restrictions are creations. You're not allowed to create anything. So Avram would break the Shabbat by creating a cow or creating a sheep. And that's how you would break the Shabbat. Like right now, if somebody goes through conversion, in the beginning, throughout the process of conversion, we tell them that you're not allowed to keep the Shabbat 100%, but you have to keep it 99%. Why so? You have to, obviously, you have to get practice. But you can't keep it 100% until you pretty much are converted or you're right, right next to the conversion. You're a month away or a couple of weeks away from conversion. Until then, you're not allowed to keep it 100%. So break it intentionally by a small thing. Turn on the light or uh, you know, do something small to break it. Not drive to shul or anything. Not a big violation. That's Chilul Hashem. But you know, something small intentional. So that's what Avraham Avinu would do. For him, creating a cow was something small. That's how big Avraham Avinu was. But I thought he was he had a great line. He was Jewish. Judaism only started when we had the Torah. We didn't have. Can, can. So that's what the that's what the sages tell us, and that's what we listen to. We don't use our own opinions, our own doubts, our own anything because our own opinions are meaningless. When you compare your opinion, my opinion, his opinion, and all seven and a half billion people that live here today, all of our opinions, none of us can create a cow. You agree? Nobody can create a cow. Nobody can create anything. Nobody can create a cup. Nobody can create a picture of a cow. So you can argue with somebody that created a cow. You can argue with somebody that brought back the dead. You can argue with somebody that spoke to God. So that's it. So people people have to understand. First and foremost, you have to listen to this Mishnah. First of all, know when to be quiet. Know when your opinion doesn't matter. When you're comparing your opinion versus Da'at Torah, versus the opinion of Hashem, versus the opinion of the sages that had much higher mental and spiritual capacity than we could ever have, you already are losing battle. You're already losing battle. So that's the first thing that we have to understand. So now, Avram Avinu, this very same Avram Avinu, that was keeping the mitzvot, argued for the Rishayim, didn't argue for the tzaddik. So someone that's as holy as this, smart as this, doesn't make any sense what he's doing. Now Chazal explains to us something extraordinary. Because Avraham Avinu knew this Mishnah. And he knew what it meant to be quiet. It doesn't mean that quiet is always good. Sometimes quiet is Sometimes quiet is good. Sometimes quiet is terrible. If, let's say, for example, you have a bunch of people coming and they're mevazim to Torah, they're going against the Torah, they start saying this, start saying that, start saying bad things against the Torah, you being quiet, it's a bad thing. If you see somebody mechalel Shabbat, you don't tell them, listen, you're mechalel Shabbat, you're not allowed to drive on Shabbat, According to the Gemara, Masechet Shabbat, page 54, it's like you violated Shabbat. 
if you didn't rebuke somebody when you see him violating Shabbat, violating any sin, it's like you made it. So that quiet is not good. It's not a kosher quiet. It's a bad quiet. But if you have somebody that wants to argue with you, your wife wants to come, she wants to argue with you. She's hot, she's upset, the kid fell, and she doesn't know where to take out all this extra energy on, she wants to argue with you. About what? Nothing. Oh, I'm this, oh, I'm that, you never take me out, or you never this, or you never that. Things that are not true, or perhaps even, don't really, uh, it's not really what she really wants, she just wants to argue with you. Or perhaps the husband wants to argue with the wife. For what? For nothing. He's upset, the guy, the, the, the boss didn't give him a raise, he was supposed to get a new position, he didn't get it, some other guy got it, his team lost, his this lost, he got a flat tire, whatever, all different types of shtuyot that happen in people's life, and we get upset about them. We get really, really upset. Now, when somebody is upset, it's could only one of two things could happen. Either it stays with them and eventually goes away, or it turns into a vikuach. It turns into argument. A vikuach must be between at least two people. There's no such thing as an argument between one person, with himself. If, if you're arguing with yourself, you probably should not be coming to the shul, you should go to a menstrual solution. <laughs> You don't argue with yourself. What do you say? No, yes, no. That means you're, you're multiple, you're bipolar. It's a problem. Shira is not going to help you for that. So vikuach, an argument, means it has to be between two people. What is a vikuach also? It's a synonym for what another word? Milchama. Vikuach is war. Every single war is because there's a difference of opinion between two parties. We can do that because he is mad. And we are not able to contain ourselves. We have to speak. We have to have our opinion heard. We have to do what we're doing because we want to hear ourselves speak. We want our opinion to be heard. We want our opinion to be listened to, and so on. So now, in the book of Job, chapter 26, verse 7. When one of Job's former friends is saying different he's saying different things that are not really uh, good things to say, not things that are, you know, he sounds like he has no emunah. Job answers him, all the things you have, where do you think you got them from? You got them from Hashem. And you have this from Hashem, you have that from Hashem. He says Hashem is great, even though Job is the one that's suffering. Job is the one that got sick. Job is the one that lost all of his money. Job is the one that lost all... Yes, of course. Job is the one that lost all of his kids. Hashem and ten kids died in the same day. All of his money, billions of dollars lost everything in a matter of hours. Like imagine he invested everything in the stock market and the stock market went to zero. Went to nothing. Everything was lost all in a matter of an hour. Like I lost it on that, that one day. Nine o'clock in the morning I have money... 9.35, no money. I would, be, I, would, I would go nuts on the government. Hashem. Listen, Hashem gave me my tikkun when I was able to handle it. Hashem will give you a test that you can't handle. Okay, Hashem. So, now, Eov is trying to, even though he's the one that's suffering, he's trying to help these other people. He says, all the stuff you're complaining about, Hashem is great. 
Meaning Hashem suspends the earth upon nothingness. Meaning, you're sitting over here all comfortable in your chairs. You have your shirt, you have your hat, you have your gravity, you have your oxygen, you have your food. You have your blood cells, you have your white cells, your red blood cells. You have your teeth, you have your car, you have the sky, you have the atmosphere, you have rain coming. You have everything that you want. But all of this stuff, your whole world, sits in a little sphere. Little sphere, the Gemara Masechet Chagigah, page 12, says that the world already, two, over 2,000 years ago, they already knew that the entire globe is a sphere. Not like the Goim that thought it was a flat world. Some Goim, like the Greeks, say that they actually uh, they knew that the world was round, but it's not written anywhere as obvious as it is for the Jews. That the world is a sphere. It's also written in the Zohar, which is 2,500 years ago. But nonetheless, the point is, is the that... The also turning around. Right. So now, Job is saying, this sphere has to be in a perfect place, in a perfect time, perfect temperature, perfect everything. Meaning, if this sphere goes one direction to the right, go to... If the sphere goes one, dire- one direction, one degree to the right and closer to the sun, the sphere is destroyed because everything dries up. It was better than all the scientists today. Already. If the sphere goes one direction, one degree to the left, it gets too far from the sun, one degree, not 500 degree, not nothing. One degree, a little bit, with a little move, a little shake to the left. Everything freezes. We're not going to survive. So he says, now this sphere Job is telling us, it's very, very important that it stays in its place. And Chazal explains to us in the Zohar, like you said, it's spinning. It's not only standing there. It's spinning. Spinning almost 1,700 miles per hour. Really, really fast. Now if you take a ball... And you spin it, took the pole, you know, spin it. It's going to start going somewhere. It's going to go to the right, it's going to go to the left, it's going to go somewhere. It's not going to stay in the same place. Especially if it's spinning really, really fast. It's going to go somewhere. Unless you have something holding it, whether it's your finger that's holding it in balance, or it's a pole, or it's something that's holding it where it is. But Job is telling us, the world, what is it standing on? Nothing. It's not only in a perfect place, but it's spinning really, really fast, and it's not moving not one degree to the right and not one degree to the left. Because if it would move one degree to the right or the left, everything changes, everything is destroyed. So Chazal says, from here we learn the significance of being quiet at a time of argument. How? Toleretz al blima, blima, nothingness, comes from the word bolem. Bolem means quiet, someone that holds himself back from talking. Bolem pe beshat vikuach. Arishonim, Razal, told us that the olam omed al blima is 
when someone is in a situation where somebody comes to argue with him, his wife comes to argue with him, the husband comes to argue with her, the boss comes to yell at you, the customer comes to yell at you, and yet you bullying, you keep your mouth shut, you don't answer, you don't make it into a war. They're arguing, but with themselves. Meaning that because you're quiet, the argument dies. Because what, is he going to continue arguing with herself? She's going to argue with herself. Okay, she's going to yell, ah, 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 ah. eventually, if you don't answer, that's it, she finishes. Eventually, he finishes, that's it, it's over. Why? Because you didn't contribute. You didn't join. If you join, even if you say so, like that, just that, she, she talked to you for an hour. If she talked to you for an hour straight, she's talking, she's burning your ears already, are melting from, from the fire coming out of her mouth. You don't say nothing. But then at the end of an hour, you say one word. Small little word, two letter word. So, Genom is going to be like Ganeven for you. What's she going to do to you after you say so what? Because you, it's just those two letters made her whole hour like it's not important to you. Not only she's already upset, on top of it, you're making her feel like what she's upset about doesn't mean anything. Oh, what? Oh, what? You're not going to stay married. Huh. You may not even stay alive the week. Just say you're right, you're right, and that's it. So here's the thing. So, Job is telling us, and Chazal is explaining to us, there's a time to be quiet. Where your quietness is so valuable that Hashem is telling you that at a moment... Where there's supposed to be an argument. Somebody came to you to start a war. Somebody said, Lashon to your face. He's making fun of you to your face. And you stay quiet. Then you contain the war. And because of you, the world is standing. Meaning, what is the world standing in? He's standing on nothing. What's that nothing? That nothing is all of those people that are shutting their mouth at a time where there's an argument. That's, like two pounds, That's the people, the people that are quiet, he's holding the world up. He's holding the world up. So if I stay quiet, I'm doing myself a favor in an argument. Not only are you doing yourself a favor, you can actually even pat yourself on the back saying, ah, the whole world is standing because of me. Mamash, that's what Hashem is telling you here. This is something that people don't understand the value on. And now, somebody would say, okay, wait a minute, hold on a second, Rabbi. You're trying to teach people midot. You're trying to teach people midot, but you're telling the guy that he should be proud of himself for doing a mitzvah. Isn't pride not good? Sometimes it's good, sometimes it's bad. In the book of Chronicles 2, uh, verse 613, chapter 613, or 136, I'm sorry, 136, it says, And his heart became prideful because he was fulfilling the will of Hashem. Meaning, Hashem, that's what Hashem wants you to do. Tell people you did it. It's Kiddush Hashem. But if you have nothing to talk about, you say, no, I have a nice car. Ah, that's a prideful person. You should go in a room and work on your midot. Guy says, Lo, look at my beautiful wife. You and your wife should stay inside and learn that you're not supposed to show your wife like she's a trophy. 
But if you're doing a mitzvah, Chazak Baruch, you should be proud of yourself. Why not? This is, again, a lot of people think that you're supposed to, everything is supposed to be extreme. If pride is not good, anywhere. No, there are certain things, certain times that it is good. Where? If it's fulfilling the will of Hashem. But not pride like, listen, I just built a shul, look at me guys. No, then you're not doing it lishmat. Then you're doing it for the pride of getting kavod of people. Meaning pride within yourself, that you're proud that you're moving closer and closer to Hashem. Meaning that you are fulfilling the will of Hashem. You should be proud of yourself for that. Not like put a banner on the, uh, on the highway. Say, hey guys, look, I built a shul. Hey guys, look, I'm uh, doing a, uh, you know, uh, a big mitzvah here. I just donated $100 million to a hospital. That's not a, uh, that's not a mitzvah. That's a benadam atzarashah. Sometimes you have people that they only do the mitzvah so they can publicize it. Not because they care about the mitzvah, because they care about the kavod. They want everybody to know that they have money and they're generous. But in reality, they're not generous. They just want everybody to say, good job, good job, good job. So that's not allowed. So now, first and foremost... It's about to be quiet. First and foremost, we hear here that... is a huge benefit of being quiet at a time of argument. Huge benefit. The... Gemara, Masechet Yoma, page 19b. It says, Anyone who has a meaningless conversation is making a positive sin. Is making a sin. <coughs> so now, this went up a level. Why? On one hand... We hear that we have to be quiet at a certain time, we have to talk at a certain time. But now, Chazal is telling us that even when you're talking, you have to watch your words. Even if you want to talk, you have something to talk about. Hey, listen, I had this, I had that, I had this. You have to make sure that you watch your words, you're not wasting your words. Why? Because if you're having a completely meaningless conversation, it's a hundred percent sin. It's a sin. How relevant is it is is it to our generation? Obviously, this is something that's very very difficult for most people. But nonetheless, the Rambam says a person should always accustom himself to keeping silent, meaning to increase his silence. He should speak only of matters of wisdom or matters pertaining to his living needs. This is Rambam Mishneh Torah. Uh, two. So the Rambam is telling you, listen, of course you're not only going to say only Divrei Torah your whole life, you're not Moshe Rabbeinu. Can you talk about cars? But if it has something to do with Torah, you can talk as much as you want. If it has something to do with your living, to survive, listen, uh, can you grab a toothbrush for me? I need to brush my teeth. Listen, can you, I need to order, I don't know, I need to order pizza. I need to, hey, by the way, the customer, you talk to the customer about selling him something. You need to talk about things like this. So that you're allowed to do. But saying shtuyot, you want to just talk about how nice cars are. You want to talk about girls. You want to talk about some baseball player that makes a lot of money. You want to talk about some Hollywood star that made a good movie. All of that, shtuyot, not allowed to talk about it. You're wasting your life. You're shorting your life. 
Now, we have a serious, serious problem. Because a lot of us talk a lot of shtuyot. So in uh, Shira Shirim 5-6, it says, Nafshi yatsah bedivro. Nafshi yatsah bedivro. Shlomo Melech is saying, Nafshi yatsah bedivro. And Chazal is explaining to us here, it says, yes, my soul comes out from the mouth. Meaning that every time I say something, a piece of my soul comes out. If it's Divret Torah, I'm also accumulating something and adding life because Torah is a, is a, is a uh, compared to uh, to, to life. But if it's Shtuyot, if it's baseball, football, the movies, all the nonsense that's in the world, Shlomo Melech, the wisest man that ever lived, is telling you, my friend, you're wasting your life you're wasting your years. All this extra words, you have to understand, Hashem gave you a certain amount of words, a limited amount of words to say in this world. Now, He didn't tell you when you first came in, hey, by the way, Amos, you were given X amount of words. Yaron, you were given X amount of words. Nisan, no, He didn't tell you the amount. So we don't know. So somebody that likes to talk shtuyot, they're talking and talking. If they have, they have the gift of gab. They like to talk. Not only they talk shtiyot, but they, uh, they, they have the gift of God. They can talk to no end. This person is killing himself every time. This is Sometimes you see somebody, oh wow, what a nice guy. He only died at 40 years old. Oh, he only died at 60 years old. This is a problem. So now, this is one of the things that we have to understand that there's a time to be quiet but even the time that you're allowed to speak, you have to watch your words. You can't just talk to no end. So Avraham Avinu knew that there is a few different types of talking, a few different types of speech. And he actually mentioned it. There's a really nice thought in this uh, in this blog. He said he, he brought up this uh, Franz Rosenweig, a Jewish philosopher. Who uh, spent all of his life analyzing this uh, this whole subject of, of being quiet and Jewish thought and so on? He says, "This is what he says. There's different forms of quiet, different forms of speech. So first, there's one that, that can't speak to another person, meaning he's quiet." Not because he wants to be quiet. He's quiet because he can't speak to another person, either because of a physical you know, disability, he's mute, or because the person is not there. Or the person is deaf, or whatever. He can't talk to him. So that's the first type of quiet. Then there's one that's the opposite, that he can talk, he wants to talk, and he talks. He has the ability to talk to the other person. So he's the exact opposite. Then there's finally, there's one that gets to a point where he doesn't feel like the need to talk to the other person. He doesn't want to talk to him anymore. He decides, you know what? I already said everything I said. I don't want to talk to her anymore. Nothing for us to say. Like sometimes you have people that, you know, yeah, there's a debate. Some people like to debate. Some people don't like to debate. I personally like to debate. But sometimes there's certain people I don't feel like debating with. Why? Because it's not worth it. Because they're not listening. They're not looking for the truth. Wasting time. 
They're looking for the truth. They just have their opinion. There's nothing you can do in the world. You could be the Mashiach. Come down, say, hey, Hashem, look, I have to that Zeut, Mashiach. Not listening to you anyway. They don't want answers. They don't want answers. They already have their answers. Like, for example, sometimes I have the uh, debates with certain people. You know, the whole issue with wigs. Wigs. Now, this is a very, very big machlok. This is a very big, dramatic issue in Judaism. And it has been for some time, especially in recent couple of generations, where a couple of Ashkenazi poskim said that a certain type of wig is allowed, and then people translate it to something completely different, where they're pretty much saying that all wigs are allowed, and not only all wigs are allowed, there are wigs that are more beautiful than natural hair. And you could sweep the flow with the wig and you're a little movie star. This is not what the Puskim said, even the Ashkenazis. Number two, then you have, yeah, but there was also a couple of Sephardics. And one is saying that one of the great Puskim of Tzion Abba Shaul said, yeah, you're allowed to have wigs. And he was Sephardic, which is very rare for a Sephardic to say that wigs are allowed. He was like a Shmata. But no, as a matter of fact... Uh, my Rav is the Talmud of Rav uh, Gidon ben Moshe, which is one of the main students of Rav Tzion Abba Shaul, who actually wrote the book with Rav Tzion Abba Shaul that put the answer about the whole wig being allowed or not allowed. And he says, no, he didn't, Rav Tzion Abba Shaul didn't allow the wig. All he said is that a woman is allowed to wear a wig next to a husband inside the house if he's doing Kriyat Shema. Meaning, if somebody wants to do Kriyat Shema, he's not allowed to do Kriyat Shema next to a woman that doesn't have a hair covered. His wife is not hair, her hair is not covered, even though she's his wife, he's not allowed to do Kriyat Shema next to her. Not allowed to do Kriyat Shema. This is also the problem of what, you know, you go to certain shuls where, like reform and conservative shuls, where the men and women pray together, it's a problem. Not only a problem that the rabbi is usually a dog or a cat or uh, a homosexual, it's also a problem because a, uh, you have the uh, people are, uh, you know, mixed. So now, if somebody has, if there's a woman that's not covering her hair, that is a, uh, is it okay? Woman is not covering her hair, you know, to do crotch monaster. So Avtiyon Abashol said, no, if she wears a wig, that's sufficient for the husband, our own husband, to do Kriyat Shema next to that's sufficient covering of the hair. He didn't say go outside and cover the hair. Now, right, so now there's people mistranslated it. And there's even a machloket, even between another student of his, another student of Avtiyon Abashol, that according to somebody, I never heard it from the actual student itself, but according to somebody, he says, no, he heard differently. He said that it's okay. Because the problem is that Rav Tzion his own life wore a wig. Yeah. Now, in the book, Echtov Yisrael by Rav Efraim Kachlon, he wrote an answer to this that Rav Gidon ben Moshe said. And he said, listen, when somebody came up to Rav Tzion and said, listen, Kvodarav, how are you saying you're not allowed to do a wig if your own wife wears a wig? Your daughter-in-law is wearing a wig. How are you saying that? And Rav Tzion said, did you come to me to ask me what's allowed 
Or what do people do? <laughs> you understand? That's smart right there. So, just because his wife did doesn't mean that uh, it's allowed. The same goes when somebody came to Avavadya. Avavadya, Zechit Tzadik Vacha, was very, very strong against wigs. Very strong against wigs. He's, he's recorded multiple times about being very strong against wigs, but somebody, one time a chutzpan, came to him in, you know, in one of the shiurim, said, Call it out. How is it that your uh, daughter-in-law, your own daughter, I'm not really sure if it was a daughter or a daughter-in-law, wears a wig? And you're saying now to wear a wig. Oh, Vadya says, yes, there's place for hiring gain no also. Place for the no also. He wasn't. Uh, he wasn't joking around. But it's like if everyone is not doing it, then like why should I do it? You know, it's hard. Because you are obligated to do what Hashem says, not what people do. If you were going to just compare yourself to what people do, then you're going to within a week you're going to stop keeping everything. Why? Because you have seven and a half billion people. No, normal religious people do. If they were normal religious people is what a couple of million normal religious people. Out of the couple of million normal religious people, not everybody necessarily has the highest level of emunah. Some yes, some no. So the point being here is that sometimes I have to go back to the issue at hand. Sometimes I have an argument with somebody about wigs. And uh, at the end of the argument, you tell them, listen. If you're Ashkenazi and you want to rely on the Ashkenazi poskin that say you have wigs, fine. But you have to look at what Ravel Yashiv the leading Ashkenazi poskim at his time, of Kanievsky, all of the major poskim, even the ones that said, Rav Yashiv didn't say it's not allowed. But even if you look at the couple, the couple that said it's allowed, the couple, none of them, that's not the biggest poskim in the world, but the couple that said it's, that it's allowed, they never said it's allowed that you have to have, to have a wig from, uh, from your head all the way to your, uh, you know, to your uh, stomach. They said, if you're going to have a wig, it has to be short, it has to be modest. That's number one. You can't make it more attractive. So that's number one. Number two, when you compare the wigs that they permitted in their days versus the wigs of today, the Rabbanim are saying that the wigs of those days, even a blind person would have known it's a wig. <laughs> Meaning they looked like straw, they looked, like, they looked terrible. So to say that you know the wigs of today that look better better looking than the uh, the natural born hair, obviously this is not the same wigs that they permitted. That's number two. Number three, you have another issue. You have another very big issue. There's only a couple that say it's okay, but. One of the Gdolei Adol said, after doing research, I found is at least 85 poskim that say it's not allowed to wear a wig under any condition. <coughs> at least 85 of the leading poskim say it's not allowed at all. So let's say you have two, three, maybe four. Say it's okay, five. Those five are better than the other 85 of the biggest giants of the generations. So your whole life you're going to say it's okay to listen to those five, to those three, to those two, but to go against the 85, you're, you're okay with that? Because the other, the ones that say it's not okay, they're not just saying it's not okay, but you know what, don't worry about it. The ones that are saying it's not okay, like for example, the Baba Sali, Baba Sali says, a woman that wears a wig is 
going to see the downside of it when she goes to Gainon because they're going to use the wig as material to burn her. They're not very nice about it when they're saying it out loud. They're not saying, ah, it's not a big deal. It's a problem. The ones that are against wigs, it's a very, very serious problem. So you have 85 at least. So that's, that's number three. Number four, that I don't think any is, is the biggest one, is the biggest atomic bomb. Because it's the only one that no one's addressing right now. If you want to listen to the poskim, to this one, to that one, fine. Let's say you found yourself an excuse. Let's say you found yourself an excuse that you're going to listen to the poskim and wear a wig. Fine. Ashkenazi, Sephardi, whatever you want to be. Zakubal. Here's the problem that no one's addressing. After doing some serious research, and Bezant Hashem will come out with something eventually, like some movie of some kind or whatever, but after doing some serious research, market research, which is what I did for 16 years for a living, it's almost impossible, it's almost impossible to get a wig that doesn't come from Abu Dazara. Hmm. 99.99999% of all wigs come from India and China and they get their wigs from their temples people are as, as a korban to their false gods shave their head That's their, they do it every year and according to statistics, they said that out of the billion people approximately that India has, every family, every person has, has donated his hair at least twice. Every, so two billion people pretty much donated just from India, at least, the minimum. There are tens of thousands of tons from these temples to such an extent that everyone knows that the Vatican, Abu Dazarab, the Vatican is the number one richest entity in the world. Right, the Vatican, they own more real estate than McDonald's. Permit. Who's the second richest entity in the world? I'm talking about entity bigger than Apple, bigger than IBM, bigger than Walmart. The Vatican is bigger than all of them. Who's number two? The Indian temple where they donate the hair. What do they got? Because there's six people donating hair? No, because there's lines out the door, out the building, out the street, out of the city. Every single day, people donating their hair. Pilgrims donating their hair. So now, there's different shows you can look up on the internet if you want. You can do your own research if you'd like until we get our research. It's going to take some time. Uh, you know, put it into I mean, something. But pretty much you see that all of the wigs are coming from this. They, but what happens? There was a big balagan about a little over 10, 12 years ago. Where somebody said this, look, all the wigs are coming from India. So the Gdoleado made a big stink about it. There was a big thing. They started burning all the wigs in Yerushalayim. But then somebody came out and said, no, 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 no. We're going to get kosher wigs. We're going to go watch. We're going to go to India and make sure that the people we're getting their hair from are not doing a fighter worship. Now, whoever is naive enough to believe this nonsense... Good luck to you. What can I tell you? I can't help you. I can't, I can't help somebody that's not willing to help themselves. Or they say, no, no, we're getting them from Europe. That's what most people say. No, no, we're getting European wings. 
with getting European wigs. Yeah. When was the last time you saw an Italian woman shaving their hair? Never. Never. Why? Because they value their beauty more than they value their life. That's true. My wife's Italian, I know. Trust me, they love you. It's not that my wife, my wife is a very beautiful woman. She knows, she, she's the one that told me this. She goes, you serious? You think that somebody Italian is ever going to shave their head? A few bucks. For a few dollars? For a million dollars, she's going to shave her head. What, are you crazy? Who shaves their head? A European wig? No, no, so not what we do. Okay, so it doesn't make sense that the Italian are going to shave their head. It's like, oh, but maybe the French. French, French are even worse. No chance they're going to shave their head. They value their beauty even more than the Italians. <coughs> okay, maybe the English. No chance in the world. So we start looking all over Europe. No way, no way. It's not part of anyone's heritage. So then we started doing research. We found this whole uh, video uh, by a uh, big news organization research place. A guy that, uh, uh, unfortunately, a Jewish guy that started the wig business, like made the, the whole hair extension business, uh, maybe like 25 years ago. And it's, of course, so this, this person, they had a whole interview about him. Guy became a billionaire. <coughs> this. And uh, at least in this world, he's a billionaire. In the next world, but nonetheless, he shows you his whole process of where this European wig is coming from. And you see all of the European wigs, all of the everything wigs, India. It just says everything, it just says you. Why? Because it goes from India, then it goes for processing in China. So it says made in China then. Then China sells it to England or France or some other place. And then they do the next step of the processing. Once you start touching it, painting it, you know, the, the you know, so you do something to it, it becomes yours. So then somebody asks, okay, what about the blonde wigs? When was the last time you saw an Indian woman that's blonde? My friend, they paint them. Yeah. And you see in the same, same movie, they paint them blonde, they paint them red, no they paint them whatever, whatever color you want. Whatever color you want, they paint them. And they show you the whole process, and it's all coming from India. Now, to say that there's, why do I say 99.9%? Because it's always possible, unlikely, but possible, for somebody to go to somebody else and say, listen, I want to buy your hair. And that person saying, okay, some, I don't know, some Israeli, I actually have a cousin like this, uh, her daughter wanted to be a hero, and she wanted to donate her hair to some cancer patient. Yeah, I heard about this. So an Israeli girl donated her long hair to some cancer patient. Okay, but how many Israelis are doing this? Six? Seven, they're not supplying the entire wig business. Oh, you have some woman in Wisconsin, grew her hair over 20 years, she sold it. Okay, that's it, she grew it, she sold it, it's over. How many of those women in Wisconsin and Iowa you have? They're not supplying the tens of thousands of tons of wigs every year. So that's why I say 99.9%, it's possible that you may have the one, but it's unlikely. Why? Because the overwhelming majority of them is coming from India. So now you have a bigger problem than all of the plus scheme. You have a bigger problem than whether it's allowed to wear a wig or not allowed to wear a wig, whether it's long or it's short, whether it's black or it's white or it's red. You have a different problem. Why? Because this specific issue, no one allows. What is this issue? Benefiting from Abu Dazara. Once something was ever used for Abu Dazara, you are never allowed to benefit from it. Gemara Masechet Avodah Zarah. 
There's a whole Gemara about it. You're never allowed to benefit out of it. No Posex is going to tell you something different. Once, it be, once it's used for Avodah Zarah, that's it. You must destroy it. So when Hashem said, Am Yisrael, go to Eretz Yisrael, but burn all of the, uh, the uh, Ashur trees. Why burn the trees, Miskinim? Why are we going to burn the trees? We don't need to burn the trees. It's hot. We don't need it. It's not New York where it's freezing cold. No, no, no. All of those trees were used for Avodah Zarah. Once they were used for Avodah Zarah, once somebody bowed to them, must destroy them. You can't even look at them. You can't benefit out of them. You must burn them. You must destroy them from the face of the earth. You can't even make uh, pots and pans. You can't make nothing from them. You must destroy them. Once a way comes from a source of Avodah Zarah, you must destroy it. So now, who can tell me with confidence? What woman in the world can tell me or herself, really? When Me, who cares about me? Who can look in the mirror? What woman in the world can look in the mirror with her nice long wig and look in the mirror and says, you know what? I am 100% confident that my wig came from a righteous person that's not doing idol worship. Sure. 100% sure. It has to be 100%. It can't be 90. Why? Because if it's 90, you're, you're actually an idol worshiper. Supporting. You're supporting idol worship. It's not like it's a small sin. Like, listen, you ate, uh, you know, uh, you ate something that's not like glot. It's kosher, but it's not glot kosher. It's not bet yourself. It's not Beit Yosef. It's not... Okay, it's kosher, but it's not like the greatest kosher level. No, it's not that. It's idol worship or not. That's a serious problem. That's a serious problem. So now you have yourself a serious problem. So now I have these debates. To go back, you guys even remember the original argument why I even brought up this whole week situation? So I said that sometimes I have debates with people. That I know they're looking for the truth. I remember a few lectures that I did in New York. I, uh, I said something that Rav Nisim Yagen said a long time ago. And he says this. Wig, no wig. Only one question to anybody. When anybody wears a wig, it's because they're trying to fulfill the will of Hashem. They're trying to be righteous. It's not, they're not wearing a wig... Because they want to look like uh, Paris Hilton or uh, some other uh, prostitute. <coughs> or in a way because they are trying to do the will of Hashem. Trying to be righteous. Cover their hair. Usually. Wig, no wig. Doesn't anybody ever ask themselves the question, who's the only person, who's the only woman that we mention in the Torah that showed her hair? The Sotah. The wayward woman, the woman that's being accused of possibly cheating on her husband. Part of the embarrassment of trying to convince her and intimidate her to admit that she cheated on her husband so they don't have to have her drink this water and kill her is by taking off the mitbacha, taking off the hair covering and showing her hair. Meaning that even a woman that cheated on her husband, even of a woman that's a cheater, even of a woman that's a prostitute, still would not go around with hair uncovered if she's married. So my she's scared so, away. Right. So here's the thing. So, so again is asking the question: Why does everybody want to look like the sota? Why does everybody want to look like the sota? It's not a compliment to look like the sota. So now you have yourself a serious problem. 
So I, sometimes I have this question, and Baruch Hashem, when I said this in the New York lecture, Rabbi Zitron, which Bezat Hashem, I'm going to do a lecture you by his place tomorrow. You huh? You have someone argue with you in that lecture? No, no one argued. I just said this during the lecture. And Rabbi Zitron told me that one of the women that came there came to him after the lecture. And she says, right now I'm taking it. I never thought about it that way. From today on, I'm covering my hair, Baruch Hashem. With that's, a scarf. That's what happens when you see the truth. She saw the truth. She said, I never thought about it this way. I never thought it's such a big deal. Cover my hair, wig, this, that. But I never thought. The only... Who wants to be like the Sultan? On that minute, she told him. And he told me. He sent me a, he sent me a message. He's like, you wouldn't believe it. The woman that day took on Kisurosh. So sometimes so I say this. Why do I say this? I say this because it's the truth. And I say this because it's necessary. But, but sometimes you have people that don't want to hear the truth. They don't want to hear it. They already have their mindset. They're already listening to their rabbi that's allowing them to do it. They're already, whatever. They, they don't want to change. They're not interested in changing. So in that case, arguing with them, debating with them, is a complete waste of time. It's a complete waste of time. To go tell somebody that's, uh, uh, that has it in his lineage and is not, he's just not interested in changing, not interested in doing anything, you're wasting your time. You could break your head from here until next week. You could show them every proof from the Zohar, from the Gemara, from the five books of Moses, from anywhere you want. It doesn't make a difference. If he's not looking to be an ish emet, if he's not looking for the truth, nothing's going to change. You could talk until you're blue in the face. You could talk until you turn into a smurf. Nothing's going to change. Nothing's going to change. He doesn't want to hear the truth. He wants to wear a wig. He wants to eat taref. He wants to be mechal shabbat. He wants to steal. He wants to, whatever he wants to do. He doesn't want to change. So then, to, to spend your effort talking to him, it's a complete waste of time. It's not a mitzvah. The Gemara says somebody like that. It's not. It's, you don't even. It's actually not even allowed to tell him what you want. Why? Because you know it's a waste of time. You know he's not going to listen to you. So now, the third stage. We said the first stage of talking is when you can't speak to the other person. That's the first type of silence. Second stage is you have somebody to talk to and you're able to talk to them. Third stage is when you get to a point where you don't feel like talking to them. There's no need to talk to them. Like this person that's never going to listen to you anyway. His father, his grandfather, his whoever told him you're allowed to wear wigs. That's it. He doesn't care. He doesn't care what you say. Who are you? You're about you only a few years. You're this. You're that. He's going to give you every excuse in the world except the truth. He's not going to say, listen, what you're saying is true because that's what Chazal said. Not because I said it. He's going to blame you. doesn't want to change. He doesn't want to change. So for him, he says, finally, you get to a point, there's no need to talk to this person. There's no need to talk to him, because nothing's going to change. You're wasting your time. And then number four, is when you get to a point where there's no need to talk, because without talking, the other person already understands you. When does that happen? That happens when you've gotten to a point where there's a perfect relationship. You've gone to the ultimate level of a relationship. When you have a relationship with, for example, let's say your spouse, your wife. The point of a relationship is for two people to bring the best out of each other. That's the point of every relationship. If there's a relationship with a man and, a wife, and his wife, 
or it's a relationship between an employee and a boss, or it's even between a you know owner and a customer. The point of every relationship is for the combination, for the pair, for the partnership, for the relationship to create a better good than what you can do by yourself. If the good stays the same or deteriorates, there's no point. It's a loss. If every day you open up shop, you lose 500 bucks, you should shut down your shop as soon as possible. You can tell me no, but listen, for the Rav, uh, you know how much money I spent on this business? Who cares how much money you're spending on this business? You're going to lose more money. The longer it stays in business, the more money you're going to lose. If you could turn it around, then it's different. But if you see that it's guaranteed to lose $500 every day forever, it's guaranteed to lose to that $1,000 every day forever, it's never going to change, then every day that you keep it open makes you insane. You're the definition of insanity. If every week you're unhappy with the job for 15 years and you still have the same job, then you're insane. Why? Because get a different job already. What's wrong with you? Get a different job. You don't like the job, get a different job. So now, so now you have a situation where someone has a relationship and they got to such a point where they realized that to have this relationship, I'm going to have to work on it. If I'm going to have a wife, I'm going to have to constantly change and improve myself. I have to improve my midot. I have to be more patient. I have to be more complimenting. If you want to be, have a happy wife, you have to compliment her every single day. When? You know when? Every chance you get. If you want a happy marriage, you must compliment your wife. She's beautiful, she's funny, she cooks great. She, I don't care if she cooks you cold. Say it's delicious. <laughs> I don't care if she looks like Gargamel. She's beautiful. Unless you want to get divorced. You want to get divorced. What are you, what are you, what are you coming for slow bite uh, uh, shoeing? You want to get divorced, get divorced. But if you want to stay married, you must compliment your wife because what's the point of staying married with a miserable wife or a miserable husband? A wife needs simple. She needs very, very simple. She needs a husband to show her he loves her. How? Words. Don't buy, you don't need to buy her a brand new car every week. You don't have to buy her flowers 15 times a week. You can buy her flowers once a week. You can buy her a car if she needs one. Friday night, give her flowers. But to have shlombait, all it requires is words. Simple words. Wow, honey, you look beautiful today. Wow, I have this. This is beautiful. Yes, it's beautiful. No, you don't have to lie. You don't have to lie. Listen, if she's 500 pounds, you can't say you lost weight. She's not going to believe you. But... Again, there's beauty in every woman, and if, if, you watch, if you watch your eyes, you'll see the beauty in your wife all the time anyway, which is also another secret of watching your eyes. People have a, lot of, a, lot, a very difficult time, especially newlyweds, where either they're scared to get married because they're scared of settling, maybe they'll find somebody more beautiful, or after they get married, they're only married for a few years, they already start looking, start looking at other women. And they find every woman prettier than their wife. The reason why is because they're looking, automatically their wife becomes ugly in their eyes. Automatically. And automatically, everybody else is better. Now if somebody actually watches their eyes and doesn't look at other women, 
Then that means that the only woman you actually look at, you see other women because you walk in the world, you, know, you see somebody, but you don't stare at them. You see a woman, you look away. You say, okay, you see that she's in front of you, she's near a direction, you go a different direction. If you're staring at her and you pretty much have a vision of her in your mind, then you're making a serious sin. But if you know, you want to know where you're going, so yeah, once in a while you look up. Most of the time you try to look down, try to look on the floor. You don't have to necessarily be uh, sightseeing at all times. You look up once in a while and you see there's a woman in front of you and you look away, you look down again. You know there's somebody in front of you, so you shift to the right or shift to the left so you don't run into that. But that means that the only woman you're going to look at is your wife. If the only woman you're going to look at is your wife, automatically she becomes more beautiful to you. If you've never seen a diamond before in your life, the first diamond you have is definitely going to be the best diamond in the world. A guy that just got a car, he's in the middle of an island, there's no cars, there's no planes, there's no nothing. The first car he ever saw in his life is this beat up car that you wouldn't even throw out in America. You wouldn't even throw out. You know, I remember when I first moved to the US 25 years ago, they used to leave cars on the side of the highway. Somebody doesn't want his car anymore and they would just leave it on the side of the highway. And we were like amazed at it, 26, 27 years ago, however long it was. Like, what do you mean? Like, these cars are so much money in Israel. Like, how does somebody just leave a car on the side of the highway? Didn't make any sense to us. So same thing like that. People just, you know, they get to a point, the car is 10 years old, or 5 years old, 20 years old, whatever it is. They leave it on the side of the highway. They don't want to put any money into it. Garbage. But somebody that got one of those cars, but it works. Makes noise. When you turn it on, you could hear it from here to Afghanistan. Can hear the muffler makes noise, this thing makes noise, that thing makes noise. The car constantly bumps this, that, but it's the only car this guy has ever seen. To him, it's the best thing in the world. To him, it's better than a Ferrari, it's better than anything in the world, because it's the only car he's ever seen. When does he realize that it's not really that good of a diamond? When does he realize that it's not really that good of a car? When somebody else comes to the island on vacation and he brings his Mercedes Benz, the brand new car. And he brings them and he brings the brand new car. As soon as he sees this other guy's car driving without the noise, driving without the bumps, driving without the uh, you know every you know the holes everywhere, immediately he starts hating his own car. It's not that he likes the other guy's car. He immediately starts hating his own car. Immediately starts hating his own life. When someone is looking at other women, immediately he starts hating his own wife. Immediately he starts being disgusted by his wife and Hashem Achem, even getting to a point where he's imagining other women when he's intimate with his own wife. Doctor's orders, because the doctor told him, listen, you guys are having uh, tough uh, intimacy problems? Listen, you think about the baseball player, and he's going to think about the uh, Victoria's Secret model. <laughs> According to Chazal, is even a safek if that's considered like their own kids, like a mamzer type of kid. It's not 100%, but it's a serious problem. Go ahead. I heard that. Um, it's not my opinion. I'm just saying what someone told me, a religious guy. Yeah, he got married. His wife had a few kids. Now, when he married her, she looked good. Uh-huh. He could look at other things after that, after that, a few kids. She gained weight. 
Ja, ik zei, die redder is afgekocht, voor iedereen gebroken lag, de Danish is. Even if I want to get tracked, I can't, because I can't tell what Not sure He's completely full of it. He's completely full of it. If he only looked at his wife, he would not know that there's other beauty in the world. But women cannot themselves go after they get married. Not that, it's not that. I'm not saying that it's allowed for a woman to become an elephant, uh, you know, on purpose. But obviously a woman is bringing life to the world. She's naturally going to gain weight. To lose weight gets harder and harder as you age. But even more so, if you're having multiple kids, it's even harder. But it doesn't really matter. If you only look at your wife, and I'm telling you from experience, if you only look at your wife, there's no such thing as other beauty. If you watch your eyes, eventually you can get to a point. I had a conversation with an avrech, an avrech yesterday. He has this issue. And Baruch Hashem working on it and he's, mamash, he's moving in the right direction. But we got to a point, I explained to him this. If you watch your eyes, first and foremost, your wife is always going to be beautiful to you. It doesn't matter if she gained weight, didn't gain weight, didn't make a difference. As long as she tries. Obviously, if she starts smearing her face with peanut butter just for fun, then there's a serious problem. But if she tries to take care of herself as much as she can, but she gains some weight. She tries to take care of herself some way, but she, whatever, she's a, a pit bull here and there because of whatever, oil or whatever. It's not the end of the world. And you won't see those things as a big deal. You'll see her as beautiful because you watch your eyes. If you watch your eyes, you'll even get to a point where every other woman becomes ugly. Everyone else becomes ugly. Everyone. Like, somebody tell you, oh, isn't she good looking? I don't know. I don't know if she's... And look, oh, what did you think of her shirt? I didn't look at her shirt, I don't know. You don't know, you don't know, you're not there. You're not in, it doesn't matter to you. Why? Because the only woman you allow your eyes to put to, to be fixed on is your wife. That's it, it's the only thing. You see, also, the eye cannot get on you if you watch your eyes. 100%. So now when you have holy eyes, you're going to have holy marriage also. But now, how do you, this, if you watch your eyes, that means you want to... Watch your relationship. If you watch your relationship, that means you want to have a good relationship. And if you have a good relationship, just you can have a seat over there. That means that you can ultimately get to a point where you can sit down in the same room with your wife. You could sit down in the same room with your best friend. You could sit down in the same room as anyone, any type of relationship that you have, say nothing, but be perfectly happy. That's the sign of a good relationship. That's a secret, uh, if, if, you if you have a relationship where you constantly need to entertain each other, there's a problem in the relationship. If you constantly have to take your wife out because she's always bored, if you constantly have to take your husband out or do something for him, or do this, or do that, because he's bored, or he's this, or he's that. There's a systemic problem in the relationship. It's fixable, but there's a problem. If your kid is constantly telling you that he's bored, or she's bored, there's a problem. Because a mind that's full of wisdom, that's content, that's happy, doesn't get bored.
and it doesn't need to be entertained. So now you have the salute, you have the ultimate outcome of this. So now we get to a point and say, okay. So now we see this perfect type of silence is a silence where I want to be silent or I don't want to be silent, but it doesn't make a difference. I know I'm sitting next to you. You don't have to say anything. I already understand what's on your mind. Oh, yeah, you thought about that too? Yeah, I thought about that too. Okay, that's it. End of the conversation. You already know where I'm going. I already know where you're going. You get to a relationship with your spouse, with your friend, with whoever, which is really see if you or your chavuta, where you already know which way the other person thinking is going to it. So, for example, me and my rav, my chavuta, rabbi fine. He'll have something that uh, we're learning, and I'll have a question. He's like, "Yeah, I knew you're going to ask that question, so I already prepared the answer for you." That's, I knew this, I'm going to tell you this, and this is the question you're going to ask about it, so I already have the answer prepared for you. That's when you know there's a serious connection here. So now, if you have that type of connection with your marriage, you already have Gan Eden. You already have Gan Eden. But if you don't, if you don't, that doesn't necessarily mean you should go into a manic depression, get divorced, kill yourself. No, it just means you have a lot of work to do. But now, how? where does this all start? It all starts with understanding the ultimate conclusion of silence. What is it? What it is? There's silence that's good silence, and there's silence that's bad silence. Avraham Avinu when he came to Hashem and he knew that there's a chance to save Sodom and Gomorrah he knew that he can't be quiet so he knew that if he's quiet at this time when Hashem is about to destroy an entire city it's a bad form of silence but on the other hand when Hashem specifically asks something from him he said from you I want your son so if that's what you want from me, there's nothing for me to argue. This is your will. It's your world. It's me arguing with you, me not being silent, is bad. Me being silent is the perfect state of mind. Which means that when someone is not silent versus when someone is silent, it's two different states of mind. So for example, when someone is silent because... They have no answer. You tell the guy, listen, what do you think? Some big thing happened, what do you think? And you're like speechless. You have no idea what's going on. I don't know what to say. I don't know. Hashem I don't know why this rabbi wrote this about that. I don't know why this woman did this and that. You don't know. You're just like dumbfounded. That is a silence that's from confusion, from chaos. Like you have no idea. Like, I don't know. I'm silent because I have nothing to say. I'm speechless. But not a good, it's not a good form. It's not a good type of silence. It's that I have nothing to say. I have nothing to add. I have nothing to contribute. I am, I'm even in a worse condition than you because at least you're trying to talk to do something about it. I am helpless. That's a bad form of silence. The perfect type of silence was what Avraham Avinu had at the time of the Akidat Yitzchak. 
he already knew Hashem's mindset. Just like a perfect marriage, where I said you just sit next to each other and you already know what the other person wants. You sit there, you're quiet, you're, I don't know, watching a lecture and all of a sudden one of you gets up and comes back five minutes later with, uh, I don't know, with uh, Coca-Cola and popcorn. Oh, you know what? That's what I wanted. I know. Hmm. I've been with you for 10 years. I've been with you for 15 years. I know you like popcorn. I know you like Coke. I know you like Gatorade. You didn't have to tell me to go bring it. First, we have to prepare ourselves so when she comes, we're ready. So now, I already knew that you like popcorn. I already knew that you like pretzels, that you like Gatorade. I, so I don't have to ask you, do you want this, do you want that? I know you like it. I know you like tea, so I'm going to make you tea. I know. Well, I have to ask you, do you want tea? Why? For what? What am I asking you for? For what, just to hear your voice? It's much more pleasing when you show me you know me than when you're constantly verifying. What, 20 years you're with me, you still don't know if I like tea or don't like tea? 500 times a day I drink tea. You still going to ask me? Just bring the tea. Instead. So that's the thing. So that's the perfect. That's the perfect. That's the perfect type of silence. Avraham Avinu already knew where Hashem is. His will is to have Akedat Yitzchak. No questions asked. That's what you want. That's it. Why? Because I love Hashem, and all I want is for Hashem. To be satisfied with my existence. So that's what Shimon is telling us here. Is that shtika, silence. It can be dangerous. Or it can be beneficial. But one way or another it's going to show you where you stand. If you have constantly a dangerous form of silence. For example... You know Torah. You know that people are not allowed to drive on Shabbat. You know that people are not allowed to eat anything. They have to eat kosher. You know that people need to be modest. But you're constantly silent. You're the rabbi that doesn't say anything. You're the one that tells everybody that Sadiqim, Nevonim, everything is great, everything is that. Then you also know that Hashem wrote something about you in the Torah. Et Esav Saneti. Esav, I hated him. Myself. It's a rabbi, I said. Why yourself? And as we said in the shiur, I think it was last week. Most people visualize a sav as some like animal, beasty like, you know, type of person. In reality, a sav was a ben Torah. He knew Torah. His father was Gdolador. It's Hakavinu. A sav knew the entire Torah. And it says in a Torah by the prophet Malachi. Hashem says, Esav, I hated him. He doesn't say Hashem hated Nebuchadnezzar. He doesn't say Hashem hated Haman. He doesn't say Hashem hated Pao. He doesn't say Hashem hated anyone else but Esav, Saneti. Why? Esav, his father's a Gdolador. His grandfather's Abraham Avinu. Why you hate him? Because Esav knew the truth. Esav knew the truth and he didn't say anything. He knew he not how to drive on Shabbat, but he didn't say anything when he saw his friends driving. He knew you're not allowed to eat taref, but he still gave a meal that's not kosher to his father. He 
Instead of giving him deer, he gave him two dogs. He knew the truth, but he didn't do it. So if you're that rabbi, you're that friend, you're that local community leader, you're that average Jew that knows mitzvot, that knows Torah, but you're constantly silent when you're seeing everybody else preparing themselves again home with their sins, you keep your, you keep your mouth shut. It says, et eisav saneti. Why? Because you consider the kofel. You consider the heretic. You're not allowed to be quiet. I'm not saying that you go around and start spearing people in the middle of the street that are driving on Shabbat. There's obviously a way to, to rebuke people. There's a way to tell people you have to develop a relationship. You have to come to them a certain way. But being quiet in perpetuity is not possible if you, if you believe in Hashem. That's a bad form of quiet. It's a bad form of shtika. On the other hand, a positive form of shtika is knowing when not to talk. When not to talk. In Gemara Masechet Megillah, page 18, it says, if a word, Chazal says, if a word is worth a coin, let's say a dollar, they use it in their own language, their own coin, their own currency, so just for argument's sake, we use a dollar. If a word is worth a dollar, silence is worth two. <laughs> so now we, now we flipped it. Now it's different. Now it's completely everything we just said has just changed. Wait a minute. You just said silent is not good. Now you're saying silent is even better than talking. How could it be? Ah. Now, as I was explaining us this, if you know what to say, then say it. Your, wor- your, your words are worth something. They're worth a dollar. You know Alakha, you know they, listen, by the way, not Michalel Shabbat Motyumat, No. You know how to say to the guy, you know how to communicate with him because you have a relationship with him, you have a dialogue with him, you have a dialogue with her, you know how you know how to speak to them, how to approach them, how to get them to understand that you care and that's why you say it. Not because you just feel like telling people what to do. then your word is worth a dollar. It's worth a million dollars. But if you don't know what you're talking about, and you don't know how to communicate, you're one of these people that see somebody, you know, violate Shabbat, you flip the table, start going crazy, hey, Rasha, Rasha, hey. Then, my friend, you being quiet is worth much, much more. It's worth double. Please be quiet. Please don't say a word. Just give them a CD. Give them the CD. Don't say a word. Do me a favor. Don't rebuke anyone. Don't tell anybody anything. Don't say nothing. If you don't know how to talk. It's talking politics, I said. It's what? Talking politics. Uh-huh. It's not a lot, right? Talking, if there's a purpose for it. If that's what you do for a living. If you're just talking about you like this president, you like that president, then it's nonsense. That's stuyot. But if you, uh, you know, if you're one of these people that comes to the shul to talk politics because you like Clinton, you like uh, Trump. Trump, you like this one, you like that one, you think he should do this, you think he should do that, but you're not in that business and you have then no contribution, be quiet. be quiet. Your word is worth uh, a lot more if you're quiet. So now, Shimon is telling you this. If, you're, if you know when to be quiet... 
That is the best thing you could possibly have. Best thing out of all character traits, the best thing. Why? Because then you already are considered chacham. When you have a room full of people, everybody's talking, da, da, you know, once in a while, you always have like this one guy that likes to make a show. Likes to talk, likes to be like interactive. He's like an action figure. Like you say six words, he's like, oh, ah, he moves his body. He's like all crazy. Usually you have this in like big gatherings. Somebody always likes to like be the movie star, big, big scene. Usually that guy's the fool. Usually that guy's the idiot. Who's usually the smart one, or at least everyone thinks he's smart? The guy, the, back. the guy doesn't say anything. The guy doesn't say three words the whole night. Oh, that guy's a genius. How do you know? I don't know. He's just he's a genius. So there's a funny story, funny joke. One time, guy goes to a bird store. He sees one tukey, one parrot. And he sees parrot, $500. Beautiful parrot from, I don't know, from some jungle. But the one right next to it is $5,000. Looks exactly the same. And the one next to them is $15,000. Also looks exactly the same. And then the one all the way to the right looks exactly like everybody else. $500,000. $500,000. Guys, look what's going on. There's four birds here. Each one's more expensive than the other. This little miserable one is 500 bucks. Everybody else is a millionaire. What's going on here? So you, no, come on, explain this to me. Why is this one $500? He goes, it's a simple parrot. Got it from some jungle. Okay, so what makes this other one? It's $5,000 so much better. He goes, oh, that one? That one knows the entire chumash by heart. Knows the chumash, yeah, but the tukey starts talking. The parish is talking about the sheep, wow, you know, it's worth five thousand dollars. Little bird knows the entire chumash by heart. Okay, so what's this one? Fifteen thousand dollars. Oh, that one, that one knows the chumash and the entire shas by heart. Mom, a second bahot, start telling the whole, the whole, uh, Wow, $15,000 worth even more. Okay, fine. So this one knows Torah Bechtav. This one knows Torah Be'alpeh. This one knows written Torah. The other one knows oral Torah. Okay, fine. I get it. What's this one? $500,000. What does he know? What else does he know? And the shop says, shop owner says, I don't know what he knows, but all I know is that the three birds call Kvodarav. <laughs> they call him Kvodarav. So, sometimes the guy that's quiet, that's the one everybody thinks is smart, and usually is. So then the next point, the Rambam says, that there's five different types of speech. There's a speech, there's words that come out of your mouth, that's a mitzvah. That's when you have divrei Torah coming out of your mouth. You have words of Torah, the parasha said this, the parasha said that, the Gemara says this, the Gemara says that, asking questions about Torah, asking questions about mitzvot, asking questions about things that are connected to the Torah day to day. That's mitzvah. Every word that comes out of your mouth, mitzvah. You could say it from now till forever. You have unlimited amount of those words. Then you have 
Second type of speech is forbidden. What is it? False testimony, falsehood, tail-bearing, cursing, foul language, lashonara. Meaning it's things you're lying to people. You're lying about witnesses. You're lying to people in general. You're cursing chas v'shalom. Using bad language. Or worse of all, lashonara. Lashonara, you're saying things about somebody, publicizing, making a bad name, like unfortunately every other day happens today. Rabbis going against other rabbis in Israel, in America. Lashonara. Say, no, no, his teaching is Chilul Hashem. His teaching is Chilul Hashem. We don't like his teaching. We don't like his style. Fine, you know what? Let's say you don't like his style. Let's say there's a certain rabbi without mentioning names because everyone already knows. doesn't really make a difference. Let's say there's a certain rabbi. We don't like his style. We don't like his style. He does this, he's too aggressive, he's too this, he's too that, whatever, true, doesn't make a difference. He says Torah, but you don't like it, you don't like the way he does it. Which halacha in the Torah permits you to say the shonara about him and to embarrassing him in public because you don't like his style? Which one? There is none. There is none. If you're not allowed to even embarrass an average Jew, an average low-level Jew, the Gemara says, it's better you jump into fire and die and burn to nothing, to ashes, than embarrass one Jew in public. One Jew. So much so that when you embarrass a Jew in public, David Melech. David HaMelech says, when you embarrass a Jew in public, you have no share of the world to come. You can do Tfilin, you can do Rabbeinu Tam, Rashi, you can do this, uh, the etrog you have is $15,000 every year, or extra mehudar, and you have this talit from Yerushalayim, Avodat Yad, you can do this, and you can go to Nets, and you can go to this, and you can do all the mitzvot in the world. You embarrass somebody in public, and no chelek lo ask for If he forgives you, yeah, you have to ask for serious forgiveness, you have to undo it. It's a very, very serious tshuva. Well, who did tshuva for something like this? Who did tshuva for something like this? Happened. Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah, well, actually a lot of the Pirushim in his book that, that you have here, that's just they wrote, not the ones that I wrote, obviously, come from Rabbeinu Yonah. Rabbeinu Yonah wrote an amazing book called Sharet Tshuva. Now, when did he write this book? Did the thing with the Rambam? Ah. Not only had a thing with the Rambam, he was the leader. Rambam came out with a book, I believe it was Morin Nevuchim, Guide to the Perplexed, that included a lot of the wisdom or teachings of the Goim, the philosophers, Aristotle, uh, Plato, and so on. Different Greek teachings and so on. And at first look, rabbis didn't like it. Big rabbis, Gdoleador, didn't like it. Rabbeinu Yonah said, this is Kfira. This is heresy. This is Hashem Rachem. This is Yeshu. This is uh, Haman. This is Hashem Rachem. Now in those days, not like printing houses, five minutes, you have 15,000 books. And every book was handwritten. To finish one book took a long time. The Morena Bukhim is a big book. And handwriting it's a long, long time. 
they start taking all of his books and burning them in the street. And Rabbeinu Yonai is the leader. Burn the book, burn the book, burn the book. Shem Yerachem. Rambam. But then Rabbeinu Yonai saw that the Goyim shortly later went to a kolel, went to yeshiva, start taking Gemara, start burning that too. Like, look, the Jews are burning their own rabbi's books. We're going to start burning Gemara too. Let's burn the whole Jew. Let's burn the Jews too. And Rabbi Yonah, Hashem let me see this because I made a mistake. I should have read the whole book before I said it's kefirah. I should have read the whole idea before I just took a clip and assumed I know what he's saying. I should have watched the entire video and see what the substance of the conversation is before assuming that a three-minute clip is the whole idea. Hashem made me see it. And I have to read the book. And he read the book. And he says, not only was I wrong, that it's not Kfirah, but Rambam is Gdoladol. Rambam is bigger than all of us. Now how can I fix this? I just burned all of his books. Everyone thinks he's a Rasha. Now everyone that was there at the burning book session, who knows if they're still here. Maybe they went to a different city. Maybe they told somebody else Rambam is this. Maybe, how am I going to fix this? For the rest of his life, Rabbeinu Yonah traveled from city to city. He took a vow. He took a nedir. Traveled from city to city to go to every community and say, Rambam is right. His Torah is holy. I was wrong. And throughout this time, he wrote the book Sharet Tshuva. How to do Tshuva. Now you know why it's such a special book. If, I, if somebody wrote, somebody that's from from birth, somebody that's religious, doesn't even know what a sin is, tzaddik, everything is great, whatever, he wrote tshuva. What do you know about tshuva? Bichlal? You did tshuva. Your father's a rabbi, your grandfather's a rabbi, you were at kolel, you never left the kolel, you learned, you're this, you're that. Your best friends were the four walls. What do you know about tshuva? Bichlal? You know about sinning, you know about this, you know about casino, you don't know anything. You're tzaddik, Baruch Hashem. Somebody made a huge sin, a chilul Hashem. Writes a book about tshuva because he actually went through it. He embarrassed himself, went from city to city, whether they knew about the Rambam story or they didn't. It doesn't make a difference. He didn't ask, hey, by the way, did you guys hear about the Rambam? Oh, no, okay, so don't worry about it. I'll leave. No. Came in, I made a sin. I made a mistake. I publicized falsehood. I said Rambam is no good. I was wrong. I said the rabbi said something wrong. I was wrong. In reality, I just don't like his writing style. If he would have wrote the whole idea in the beginning and not the whole idea at the end, then I would have changed it. But that's my fault. It's not his fault. I just don't like his style. That's why. No place in the Torah says that just because you don't like somebody's style, you're allowed to, to embarrass him in public. You have to watch the whole video, my friend, before you conclude. Just because your style is to write the main point in the first paragraph and then explain it throughout the rest of your writing doesn't mean that everybody else writes it that way. Other people can write once upon a time which is completely meaningless to the end. You have to watch the whole video. You have to read the whole book. You have to talk to the person. You have to get to know them. What was behind it? You can't just jump to conclusions. 
And this, when you do that, the Rambam says this is forbidden talk. This is not allowed. You're not allowed to live as anyone. You're not allowed to embarrass anyone. So now, that's the thing that people don't understand. Yeah, okay, you know what? There are some people that are good. There are some people that are bad. There are some people that are kofrim. There are some people that are tzadikim. Fine. There are some styles that work. There are some styles that don't work. Fine. But as long as it's Torah, as long as it's emet, as long as you don't have substantial proof that there's anything wrong with it, keep your mouth shut. And the worst part about it all is that you know that it has nothing to do with what he says. Why? Because there's plenty of people that see much worse things and no one says anything. Like for example, just today, one of my, uh, one of my helpers sent me an article, a reformed rabbi says, a reformed rabbi says that the cause of all terrorism is the Torah. And we should give respect to the Quran. Reform rabbi. Meaning he calls himself a Jew. Getting worse and worse, these people. Getting worse and worse. And then you have another one, another student sent me a picture of two of Neturei Karta in Machshimam with the uh, uniform of the Hamas. They have pictures with the leaders. Okay. So, these people, these people, if it was the time of Sanhedrin, they would get the death penalty immediately. So you have much worse problems than somebody's style that you don't like. Be quiet. You don't like it. You like it. As long as it's it true, quiet. Exactly. Exactly. So here's the thing. So moving on. Rambam says, first, speech, good one is mitzvah. Bad one, lashonara and so on, cursing, forbidden. See, the third one is tasteless. Tasteless talk. What's tasteless talk? Talk about nothing. Talk about baseball. Talk about cars. Talking about just things that are just bad behavior in general. Talking about girls. Things like that's tasteless. What, what are you talking about? What, what toilet? What, what good's going to come out of this conversation you're going to have about girls, about cars, about politics? What, what's going to come out of it? What, are you going to be a politician tomorrow? What, are you going to be Donald Trump's assistant? You think he cares about your opinion? Who cares about your opinion? Do something useful. What difference does it make if you like this car, you don't like this car, it's white, it's black, it's red, the engine is 12 cylinders or 100 cylinders, who cares? Who cares for the purpose of the world, for the purpose of your life? Who cares about this conversation, Michal? Who cares how much money Derek Jeter made? Who cares? That is tasteless. Lowest form of conversation is talking about other people's life. Other people's money. Now if you're talking about other people's life to learn from it, Meaning, you're talking about Sipuret Sadikim. You're talking about the life of the Baal Shem Tov. You're talking about the life of Rabbi Akiva, the life of Rashi. You learn about their Midot, you learn about their sacrifices, you learn about their Mestirut Nefesh. Okay, you can learn something from there. But to learn that Magic Johnson got AIDS 20 years ago and he's still alive somehow, what are you going to learn from there? All you're going to learn is the system is corrupt and they really have the cure for AIDS. That's what you're going to learn. What are you going to learn from that? What are you going to learn from that? So some people, well, people have no Torah, very empty. They usually talk mostly tasteless. Right, it's nothing, nothing. You talk about nothing. So if you, if all you have to talk about is tasteless information, that means that your brain is empty. You have to fill it up with some wisdom. You have to start filling it up with something worthwhile. Can you use that talk to get close to someone? Use the talk to get close to someone. Then it's. Someone likes it. 
sports, whatever. Yes, then, then, it's the, then it's the next form of conversation. Then it's worthwhile. Fourth, fourth type of conversation is worthwhile conversation, which is conversation that you're doing for the purpose of praising someone or of uh, connecting to someone uh, or even of, the, of, of rebuking someone. Rebuking someone is not a pleasant, it's not a pleasurable experience. At least not for somebody that's doing it for the right reasons. But if you're rebuking someone for the purpose of helping him, if you're talking to them about for the purpose of connecting to them, even if it's about a subject that's nonsense, like sports, but you want to get the kid to connect to you. Now this kid comes from a broken home. Abba doesn't like him. Ima is this. Everybody in school is this. You have, oh yeah, you want to connect to this kid. You want him to do tshuva. You want him to come back to yeshiva. Now, you can't go to the kid, 12, 13, 15-year-old kid, tell me, Michal Shabbat Mot Yumat. Who are you to tell me that? First, you're going to tell him, listen, kid, what do you like? I like baseball. Okay, so talk to him about baseball. Who cares if it doesn't matter to you? Why? Because you have to connect them first. So that's worthwhile talk. That, there's a toilet, there's a purpose for it. You're not talking about baseball because you like baseball and you really care that Derek Jeter hit the ball right or left or this one or that one. It's not because you care about the sport. It's a worthwhile purpose. The purpose is to connect to this kid's heart so he can befriend you and then listen to you. That's worthwhile. And then last but not least... Is permissible talk. What's permissible talk? Business discussions or domestic issues. Meaning you have a business, you have to run a business, you have to talk about the economy if you're if it's related to your business. You have to talk about products if it's related to your business. You have to talk about vendors if it's related to your business. You have to talk. You can't, like, you can't be a mute and run a business. Same thing with domestic issues. Sometimes you have to tell your wife, listen, what food do you want to get? What's the budget for this month? How was your day? Yes, in reality, your conversation with your wife, nine out of ten times, is about something you're probably not even interested in. Or your conversation with the wife is going to be, uh, or with the husband is going to be a conversation you're not really interested in. He's interested in sport, you're interested in, I don't know, dresses. But for the purpose and the sake of the relationship, you have to have that, that conversation. It's necessary to build a connection. So, Chazal says, don't speak too much to the woman in a sense where don't speak too much nonsense where there's no point. But it doesn't say don't speak. It says don't speak too much. So that's something we have to understand. Now, sometimes you have a situation where somebody, usually a fool, likes to talk so much that... He doesn't let anybody else talk. Sorry. Um, he doesn't let anybody else talk. So it was one time. Uh, you want to have a seat? Do you like two quarters at all? We're in the middle of a shoe. Sure. Um, sometimes you have somebody that likes to talk, likes to hear himself talk about any subject, but is at a point where he's not really looking to develop relationships. 
is looking to just, you know, be on a stage. He's not looking to help anyone. He's looking to just get fame. On someone like that, there was one time a story. The Mekor uh, Baruch says there was one time a uh, conference where there was one person wouldn't let anybody else talk. And then one guy at the table wanted to get him to stop the talking, but he has to do it in a clever way. So the guy talked, 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 talk, and eventually he said, you know, one time I heard so-and-so say, and the other guy said, liar, liar, that's a lie, you didn't hear it at all. He goes, what? Why do you know I lied? Well, you were there. He goes, no, it's not possible that you heard anybody say something, because you never let anybody talk. That's true. And then, so... Some people start a fire because they want to shut it off. And they end up burning the whole neighborhood. <laughs> it happened. So now, so we have to understand when to talk, when not to talk. The next thing is, it says, V'lo ha-midrash ha-ikar, ela ha-maase. Ha-maase. V'kol ha-marbe dvarim mevichet. So it says, after we understand the, the significance of talking and being quiet and so on, it says, okay, if you're going to already talk, if you are going to talk, let it be worthwhile talk. Let it not only be permissible talk, but let it be worthwhile. Because he's saying here in the Mishnah, it's not that you just giving a speech. Great, you gave a speech. You gave a thousand speeches. What happened out of it? Did somebody do tshuva? Did somebody improve their life because of it? Did something happen? Like, what was the point? What's the bottom line? Somebody leave the the, the uh, place with tzitzit on? Did somebody late tefillin the next day? Did somebody keep Shabbat? Did somebody get married? Did somebody have a kid? What happened? What's the point of your speech other than you making money? What happened? Is there a point for your speech? If someone doesn't consider this part of the Mishnah important, they could be... A speaker speaking 15,000 lectures in their life with not one purpose, not one point, not one reason for them, not one contribution to the world. All they cared about is being one of these scholarly looking people that today, you know, a lot of the Darshanim, even if they're rabbis, they all look like models. They all, you know, they all groom the nest and the fruit and the tie is this and the tie is that and everybody's all, all everybody's like all groomed and they all speak a certain way and they all eat, you know learn a certain way of speaking. You have to say this, you have to say that, you have to say, you know, you have to order and you have to make make sure you mention the Mishnah, you have to make sure this, you have to make sure you, and sometimes they'll give you a certain sheet so you can follow it. All nice and all. Great, do it, whatever you gotta do. If it works for you, great. They make PowerPoint presentations. Great. What's the point? Something happened out of it? Did somebody do tshuva? Did somebody get chizuk? Did somebody not get divorced because of you? Did something happen? Or did everybody said, oh, what a good speaker. That's it. And they went home and they went to sleep and nothing happened. Are you looking to be an aristocrat? Or are you looking to help people? Because it's not the theory that's important. It's not your ideas and your speaking skills 
and your sophisticated PowerPoint presentation and how you arrived at the climax of the conversation and how you broke down and you connected a bunch of complex issues and broke them down into a simple formula and made yourself look like you're a brilliant speaker and wow, and wow, wow. Who cares? Something happened. What's the tachlis? Something happened. Some, there's a result. There's money. There's something. There's, 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 like, what's the point? Because if you don't consider this part of the Mishnah, your whole life's a waste of life. Everything's a waste. Whether you're a public speaker or you're private. Whether you're speaking to your kids to educate them, or your wife to develop a relationship, or you're president of some organization. If you don't consider this part of the Mishnah, everything we just said up to this point is meaningless. All or nothing. It's either you're going there to say words that are of value, or you're just wasting your time. Or you're just tochen mine. Rav Kook once said, I don't speak because I have the power to speak. Oh Hashem, very powerful rabbi, very big rabbi. He says, I don't speak because I have the power to speak. I speak because I don't have the power to remain silent. I see a bunch of sinners. I don't have it in me to let them continue sinning. I love Hashem too much. I love Hashem too much to see all my brothers and sisters get themselves first-class tickets to Gehenom by being Mechalei Shabbat and all of these other major sins. I speak because I don't have the power to see them go and destroy their life, destroy their marriages, destroy their kids, destroy their everything. This is one of the people that don't understand the Mesirut Nefesh that's required to do this, to do Kiruv, to do what Rav Mizrahi does, to do what I try to do, to do it this style, specifically, more so than any, anything else. Not because anything else doesn't work or anything like that. There's certain styles that work, there's certain styles that don't work. But this style, Baruch Hashem, when you're teaching people the entire Torah, you're teaching them the nice things, the not-so-nice things, the Ira and the Ava, you also gain yourself a lot of haters. You get yourself a lot of people that don't necessarily like you, but 50, 100-fold more people that love you and do tshuva and convert and do everything good. For every one hater, you have thousands of people that love you and do tshuva and everything changed. But who wants to get a hater? Even if you have one hater, I got one email, this one guy hates me like I was Hitler. And it makes me feel bad. It makes me feel terrible. Like, why does somebody hate me? What did I do to you? What, I kill your parents? I, uh, what did I do to you? You hate me? Okay, you don't like what I said. What I said it. I created it. Guy hates me. But what keeps me going? Your supporters. Thousands of people, Baruch Hashem, that, oh, great, this, that. They say, they appreciate the Torah, not me. Who cares about me? Me, the point is to appreciate the Torah, appreciate the truth. The point being here is that if you ain't got no when people okay, but now the point being is people say you talk about Yirat Hashem all the time fear of Hashem, fear of Hashem, fear of Hashem 
Why don't you talk about Avat Hashem like they do in Breslev? Why don't you talk about Avat Hashem like you do in, you know, a uh, Hasidut? Why don't you talk about Avat Hashem like they do at Chabad? Why don't you talk about Avat Hashem? More advanced people. No. That is for more advanced people. You teach both, though. You also teach us Avat. The only reason, the only reason that I do this, the only reason that Rav Mizrahi has been doing it for 22 years, 23 years. The only reason we do this is because we love Hashem more than anything else in the world. Because there's no other benefit. There's no money in it. You don't get paid for lectures. You're giving lectures for free. You have, once in a blue moon, you get a donation. The millionaire is going to build 15 bit Knesses before he sponsors 1,000 CDs. And it's not like you keep the CDs, you give them out to people, it's free. It's not like you keep the books to you, I have a collection of books, you give them the books for free, all the stuff costs money. The millionaire is going to support $50,000 Hanukkah party before he gives you a $500 check to help you survive the month. There's no money in it. You don't charge money for lectures. You have guys that uh, wrote a book, so they charge $15,000, $20,000 a lecture. No one ever did tshuva from that guy's lecture, but they're still going to pay him $15,000 for the lecture. No one ever even got a chizuk from him, but he's still going to pay him $15,000 for the lecture. You go from different places every day to give lectures for free, not one dollar you charge. If somebody wants to donate, they donate, but you don't charge. So there's no money in it. On top of that, you have a bunch of people that don't like you. Especially people that are supposed to be your friends, like other rabbis. What do they do? Instead of helping you, they take your CDs and throw them in the garbage. They argue in the lecture. They argue with you in the middle of the lecture. They get into you know, debates with you for no reason. They write letters about you and publicly embarrass you. Meaning that the only benefit, the only benefit of actually doing this is a connection to Hashem because you love Him. That's it. There's no other else. Yes, it's nice to help people, but it's not enough. It's not enough. Why? Because the more people you help, the more complainers you have also. Some people also ungrateful. You help them do tshuva, you help them save their marriage, their whole life improves, everything is great. Somebody asks them, oh, who helped you do tshuva? No, I did it by myself. They don't even give you the credit for anything. Not that you're looking for credit, but the point is somebody asks you a question, who helped you do tshuva? Say, listen, your own maybe helped you do tshuva, Ramizaki helped me do tshuva, whatever. Whoever helped you do tshuva. Well, you did it by yourself. Well, you were born a monkey and now all of a sudden you became a human by yourself. You didn't know anything. All of a sudden you discovered. You didn't read a book. You just got enlightenment. You got Wach Kodesh. Who influenced you? Or you have worse. You have people, you help them do tshuva and they go against you. All of a sudden, no, no. He doesn't know what he's talking about. What do you mean he doesn't know what he's talking about? He helped you do tshuva. No, no, but I, I already learned. I, I know more than him now. What do you mean no more than him? You're learning for six months in a cola. You know more than him. You learned for 20 years already. What do you know? What do you know that he doesn't know? No, no, I listen to everything he has. I listen to all of his lectures already. I listen to everything. I love it when people tell me, oh yeah, I listen to all of his lectures. Yeah, you listen to 4,000 lectures? Do you listen to 200 lectures that I have? 300 lectures, whatever I have? Who listens to 300 lectures? Who listens to 500 lectures? Few, few. Few and very few actually listen to that many lectures. I listen to everything. Come on, no. People are ungrateful many times 
Or I have sometimes you have somebody, you help them in every way possible above and beyond. I even have a guy, I got him tefillin. Tefillin, thousand dollar tefillin. High level tefillin. Because whatever, he told me he didn't have any money. So I got him a thousand dollar tefillin. Got somebody to donate, got him an expensive tefillin. So he could do mitzvah every day. Do tshuva b'ezat Hashem. As you would have it, his financial condition started becoming better. So you think, okay, listen, you realize that I'm living on a miracle every single month. Maybe you should at least give part of the thousand dollars back. You don't need it anymore. Maybe you should sponsor a CD, sponsor one CD, one dollar, sponsor something, do something for heaven's sake. What I do, he published, oh, I just donated to this organization. Like, the ones that you don't even know, the ones that you don't know anything about, I didn't help you, do anything for you, you're giving them money, but the ones that actually helped you, give you feeling for the first time in your life, you're not helping, you're not giving nothing. But that's, that's it, that's what it is. So, this is my point, my ultimate conclusion, is not that I'm bitter, chas shalom. everything is from Hashem. Everything is from Hashem, you're not looking for favors from anybody, you're not looking for anything from anybody. The point I'm trying to tell you here, is the only reason to do this, this way, only because you love Hashem. Meaning that I can tell you, I can give you all the shuhim in the world of love Hashem, love Hashem, love Hashem, Hashem is so good for you, look, you have eyes, Hashem is so good to you, you have ears, Hashem is so good to you, he has wife, he has kids, you have this. I give you all the reasons in the world to love Hashem. But the best thing I can show you to make you see what loving Hashem is, is by telling you how to get to that point, what to do. You know you have eyes. I need to tell you you have eyes. You know you have ears. I need to tell you you have ears. You know you have a wife. You know you have a kid. If you don't know enough to thank Hashem for that, then you still need to work on Yira. You're still not at the level of Ava. You're not at a level to learn about Ava Hashem, loving Hashem. You're still at a level where you need to learn about Yira. But more, more, more than anything else, you have to understand... We don't teach Yirat Hashem because we don't want to teach Avat Hashem. We teach it because that's first grade level. That's the beginning. It's first grade, second grade, third grade, fifth grade. That's all of school. Avat Hashem is like PhD. You don't get there day one. It just doesn't happen that way. Right? So now someone needs to ask themselves... Am I just talking and talking and talking and nothing's changing? I'm talking to a blue in the face, but you're still not keeping Shabbat. I'm talking to a blue in the face, but you still can't hold yourself as soon as there's food on the table, you jump on it like a wolf. I'm talking to a blue in the face, but you still yell at your wife every day, scare the poor lady. I got one guy who pretends to be a tzaddik. His wife, every other day, tells the, tells the Rabbanit that he's torturing her. He pretends to be a tzaddik. <laughs> pretends to be, oh, on Rosh Hashanah, he wears white, a like a mekubal. She, this, that, his wife, Hashem, she's scared for her life every day. Is it tzaddik is in our line. What are you doing? Learn to be a human being first. Learn to be a human being. So if I'm not, if you're coming to my shiurs, you're watching my lectures, and you're still that way, I'm failing. 
but if you're not watching the lectures, you're not coming to the lectures, you're not listening to the advice that I give you, I tell you to come, you don't come. I tell you to do, you don't do. What else do you want me to do? What else do you want me to do? Beat you up? What do you want me to do? So that's what you have to understand. As a speaker, as a person, if you're going to teach your kids, if you keep telling your kids something and they're still not listening to you, there's something wrong with you, not them. If you keep telling your wife something and she's still not doing it, there's something wrong with you. She's not doing it because she doesn't want to do it. Because of you, she doesn't want to do it. Not because of her. You're not giving her a reason to do it. You're not giving him a reason to do it. He doesn't want to do tshuva because he doesn't see a reason. Give him a reason. If you keep saying something and nothing changes, there's something wrong, my friend. Hashem is telling you. Something's wrong. Something's wrong with what you're doing. So you have to understand, don't just talk, talk, talk about theories, about theories, about theories. Importance is action. Something has to come out of it. Something has to come out of it. Somebody at the end of the big lecture has to put on tzitzit. Somebody at the end of the lecture say, I'm going to put kisui rosh. I'm going to keep Shabbat. Something has to happen. If you finish the lecture, 15,000 people, not one person is doing anything about it. You should give a refund. Interesting words. And last but not least, we'll finish here. It says, one who talks excessively brings on sin. Hmm. When somebody is talking and talking and talking, but there's really no point. There's no point for what they're saying. It's only a matter of time before their idle talk, their talk that's like meaningless, that's low quality, where the Rambam uh, called it tasteless. It's only a matter of time before this tasteless conversation turns into forbidden conversation. It's only a matter of time before you turn this talk about other people's money into talk about jealousy, and to talk about envy, and to talk about things you're not allowed to talk about. Oh, yo, you remember that guy's house? He just built a new house. Where did he get the money from? Or maybe he did this, maybe he did that, maybe this, maybe... Then you start, then... Okay, so you're talking about some baseball player's money, that's tasteless talk, eventually culminated and became Lashonara, but your next door neighbor is building himself a castle. Mm-hmm. What is your business? What do you care you build himself a castle? What, is he stealing money from your bank? What do you care if he builds a castle or not? What do you care if he has a brand new car or not? Well, you're the only one that deserves it. Some people they will key his new car. Those are the jealous statements. So ultimately, a person needs to understand. They need to make sure that they use their words very, very carefully. They don't get to a point where they're sinning. They don't get to a point where all their words are meaningless. And if someone really, really wants to do the will of Hashem, they're going to study an enormous amount of Torah and get to a point where the only thing they think about or talk about is Torah. Oh, you see in this week's parashat that, 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 that happened? Oh, you see in this uh, Mishnah that happened? You see this Alakha, what does it say? You see this? Your mind starts to work in a certain way where the only thing you're talking about, interested about, thinking about is Torah, is the will of Hashem. And about that, they said in the Gemara Masechet Chagigah, 
one sharp pepper is sharper than a basket full of melons. Rava was comparing Shmuel, who was an Amora, to all the Tanaim. Tanaim were bigger than him. Tanaim were before him. So we go based on, you know, to Tanaim and then Amoraim, meaning that you can't, if the Tana says this is the Alakha, the Amora can't say he's wrong. He has to figure out how the Tana got to his point. He can't say he's wrong. You're never going to, I can never override somebody that came before me's rule. So now, but they're saying here that Shmuel was such a high level Amora that he outwit the Tanaim before him. Saying that he's one sharp pepper is sharper than a basket full of melons. So what are they saying really here? Rabbi is saying the way that Shmuel explained and broke down his argument was sharp to the point and you can't go against it. Whereas the ones before him, specific ones, not all of them obviously, specific ones that argued before it didn't explain it as sharply it was more vague, it was debatable, it wasn't like as good. So Tim, he's a little guy, it's like a little pepper. But that little pepper is much, much more spicy than even if you have a whole room full of watermelon. Because watermelon is never going to be spicy. It doesn't matter if you have one, or you have two, or you have a thousand. It's still going to be sweet. This little pepper is going to cause all the accidents. Why? Because da Torah, he's connected, he's glued, he's zealous. You can have all these big rabbis in the world, and I always tell everybody something. I don't understand. To this day, every day, it's amazing to me that people listen to my shulim. It's amazing to me. I don't know how. I don't know. Listen, I don't know what kind of schut I have that people listen to my shulim, do tshuva, all that stuff. It's amazing to me. And this guy, it's a ben Torah, told me yesterday, he goes, why is it so surprising? You learn Torah, you say it. I'm like, yeah, a bunch of people know a lot more Torah than I do. People go to yeshiva for 20 years, 25 years, 50 years, a million years. Their whole life they're eating in the yeshiva. What I do, Chuba? A few years ago, what's, what's, how is it that I'm teaching and I'm getting a result and this guy is teaching 25 years, not one guy did Chuba? They're teaching the truth. Point is, he says, he said this. He says, one sharp pepper is much spicier than a basket full of melons. If the guy is telling you all the nice things, listen, you're a tzaddik. <laughs> You're great. Everything is mellow. Everything is good. We don't really want the Mashiach to come. We're already happy in America. We're already happy. Look at my business. I have my shul. I have this. I have that. Everybody's comfortable. Everybody's great. Everybody's wonderful. Let's have everybody over for Shabbat. Let's have everybody over for the Chagim. Let's have the seminar a couple times a year. Let's get away from Pesach. Everyone's comfortable. Everybody's great. Because that guy, he's not helping anybody but himself. Little sharp pepper tells everybody the truth. Hey, Mechalei Shabbat Mot Yumat. Anger is a Abu Dazara. Wig. You have a serious problem. Yep. You're telling him he's little sharp pepper. You don't know. You're not though. You're not nothing. You're actually saying what the whole Torah says. Says that little pepper is going to be a lot sharper. That little pepper is going to be a lot sharper. So now... How do you get to Torah? We'll finish with this last point. How do you get to the point of getting Torah? 
Shlomo HaMelech in Mishle, chapter 2, the first six verses, gives us mamash an instruction set. He says, Bnim tikach amarai, umitzvotai titzpon itchach, להקשיב לחוכמה אוזניך, תתה ליבך ולתבונה, כי אם לבינה תקרא לתבונה תיתן קולך, אם תבקשנה ככסף וכמטמונים תחפשנה, אז תבין יראת אדוני ודעת אלוהים תמצא, כי אדוני ייתן חוכמה מפיו דעת ותבונה. To make your ears attentive to wisdom, incline your heart to understanding. For only if you call out to understanding and give forth your voice to discernment. So first he's telling you, you want to have a relationship with me, you want me to give you Torah. First and foremost, you have two ears, one mouth. Listen at least double the amount that you speak. following with this Mishnah of knowing when to be quiet. Sometimes you have people come to a shul, not because they want to listen to the shul, but they want to bother the guy, tell him how much they know. They come to the shul and every two seconds, yes, but you know, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, okay, but it has nothing to do with your shul, what you're saying. Oh, okay, great. Five minutes later, yeah, but you know, ta-ta-ta-ta-ta, Okay, great, but that also doesn't have anything to do with the shiur. And he just came, came to the shiur just to show everybody else that he also knows. Because, no, no, no. You want Torah? You want wisdom? First and foremost, do what I say. Fulfill the mitzvot, work on your midot, and listen double the amount of time that you hear, that you um, speak. Be attentive to wisdom. You come to shiur Torah, come to listen. Don't come to speak. Next thing he says, if you seek it as if it was silver, if you search for it as if it were hidden treasures, then you will understand the fear of Hashem and discover the knowledge of God. He says, you want Torah? You have to understand, Torah is the biggest treasure there is. Unfortunately, most people don't know it. They just think it's a book. They just think it's nice. They just think it's interesting. But they don't think it's the answer to everything. They don't think it's the treasure above all treasures. Because you want to have a life where all you're thinking about is Torah. All you're talking about is Torah. Where every word of your, that comes out of your mouth creates life instead of killing you. Every word that comes out of your mouth is a mitzvah instead of averah. You have to earn Torah. How do you earn Torah? You earn it by searching for it and working for it like it's money. You're working 100 hours a day to become a millionaire? Work 200 hours to get Torah. You study 5 years to become a doctor? Study 10 years to be a Talmud Chacham. Or at least an ounce of a Talmud Chacham. You're doing, working day and night, not sleeping just because you want to win this, do this, get this contract, get that contract. No less if it's Torah. Treat your Torah like it's business, like it's money. Chase it like you chase money. Chase it like it's the biggest treasure in the world. Because in reality, unlike money, 
where we finally arrive to having a lot of money, you realize it's not really worth that much. With Torah, you'll see it really is the treasure. Now, if I didn't have money and I told you this, you'd say, ah, what do you know about money? But I can tell you from experience, I had a bunch of money. And finally, when I arrived at all this money, I realized, every lavalim, it's all worthless. It's all nonsense. It's all waste. It's all headaches. It's all fake. But when I arrived at Torah, from the minute I discovered what Torah was, I already knew it was sweet. When finally I'm starting to get to a point where I'm starting to learn a few things, it's like, ah, this is the treasure. It won't disappoint. And that's what Shlomo Melech is telling you here. For Hashem grants wisdom from His mouth come knowledge. If you really want Torah, chase it like it's money. Chase it like it's treasure. Work for it. But in reality, Hashem will give it to you. It's not because you eventually became smart because of your work. It's that you eventually became a Talmud Chacham because Hashem says, Ah, you want it bad enough? I'm going to press the button and put it in you. I'm going to put the Torah in you. All of a sudden you understand the Chidush. All of a sudden you understand what it meant. All of a sudden you are the little pilpel. You are the little pepper that makes all the watermelons around that's doing nothing for 25 years. You're making them question themselves. It doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense. But it makes all the sense in the world. Because it's in the Torah. Any questions? Baruch Adonai Le'olam. Amen ve'amen. Be'lo Hashem. We'll have a uh, shield tomorrow in uh, New York. So in a few hours after we go to New York, we'll have a big shield tomorrow. Be'lo Hashem. There's going to be a lot of people. Please, everyone, do you know Mr. Bath?